Welcome to the Reorient Postscript with myself and Madhavi. But first things first, I will turn it over to the Tropicalist, our correspondent in Utopia. Thank you, Jesse. Not too many people know that the Greek word for utopia means both a good place and no place. Maybe the perfect place is one that doesn't really exist. Anyway, we're taking a quick break from regular programming to examine patterns in history that might give us a sense of where we're headed to in the future. In this edition, we look at the history of venture capital, since that was something that Jesse brought up in his interview with Furuzon Far. If you follow such things, you'll know that venture capital in its current form originated in the United States in the last century. But recently, economic historians have started taking a more global and long-term view of how capitalism developed in the West. If we look at the origin of the word venture, it first appears around the 1400s and is a shortened version of the French aventure and also a variant of the English word adventure. Its meaning evolved from fortune or chance to risky undertaking. And so, in the sense of providing capital for risky ventures with a potentially blowout rate of return, venture capital has a much longer history. And to trace its true beginnings, we must go further back in time, six or seven hundred years ago, to medieval Europe and to Italy in particular. This was an era in history when India and China dominated the world economy, and there was great demand for Asian luxuries in Europe. For this reason, whoever controlled the trade routes between Europe and Asia stood to make a great deal of money. And for the longest time, it was Furuzonfar's ancestors who controlled most of those routes. All the land routes between Asia and the West ran through the region we today call Central Asia, Any trader passing through this route, like Marco Polo, had to pay tolls to the Central Asian tribes, who then ensured safe passage of goods and people through this enormous Asian hinterland. And the tolls were very high, monopoly-level high, in fact, which contributed to the wealth and development of this region between the 9th to the 13th centuries, as Furuzonfar mentioned. Now, The Italians had historically been pretty good at building alliances with the key players who controlled the various routes, such as the Muslim Mamluk kings of Egypt who controlled access via the Red Sea. Still, the situation was not ideal, so they began to look for alternatives. The first possibility was to wrest control of the eastern Mediterranean from Muslim rulers and put the region in friendlier hands. So, for example, the merchants of the Italian city of Genoa financed both the Spanish Inquisition and the Crusades because they promised to open up key trade routes. The Genoese merchants realized that the use of religious passion as a motivator for expansion and conquest was much more effective than framing the Inquisition and the Crusades for what they really were, a way to establish themselves as the dominant merchants in the Mediterranean and access trade routes to Asia. Another solution was to finance voyages of discovery, the object of which was to find alternative maritime routes to Asia, which would allow the Europeans to bypass Central Asia altogether. Guess who funded Christopher Columbus' attempt to reach India by sailing westward? Yes, the very same Genoese merchants who had moved in to take over Spain's banking system when it collapsed a century earlier. Now, because both types of ventures were so risky... The major banking families of Italy, such as the Bardis, 
the Grimaldis, and the Medicis had to come up with a variety of financial innovations to diversify risk and increase their returns. Arguably, the most momentous innovation was the Genoese Maone, one of the earliest forms of the chartered company. Chartered companies were commercial organizations formed by investors seeking to exploit commercial opportunities in a particular branch of trade in a specific part of the world. In exchange, they were granted by royal charter a trading monopoly in that region. See, these banking families had lent so much money to the European sovereigns, it wasn't long before they held most of the political power as well. The monopoly rights they were granted were very significant because they guaranteed a huge return should the venture be successful. Those returns were required to justify the enormous risk and upfront costs. Not only were the traded commodities extremely expensive, they were carried in huge ships which needed to be manned by large crews and protected by artillery masters and professional musketmen. Moreover, even if everything went according to plan, there would be no return on investment for several years. By the way, the chartered company was also the precursor to the modern corporation. The world's first chartered joint stock company was formed in 1555. It was the Muscovy Company, or to give it its full title, the Mystery and Company of Merchant Adventures for the Discovery of Regions, Dominions, Islands, and Places Unknown. So there you go. There's a fact for your next trivia night. Anyway, so there you have it. The original ventures for venture capitalists were aimed at displacing Central Asians from their monopoly on trade, which is why it tickles me to think that today, if venture capitalists from Central Asia like Fouzonfar can help reclaim the region's one central role in international trade, it will really be a case of history coming full circle. Well, the Tropicalist made some very interesting comments about the history of venture capital, and I also had a few thoughts about that. First, the idea makes a lot of sense that we need to find some way for people to take very risky undertakings, and that requires capital. And the idea of capital, venture capital, really goes, you can go back uh, hundreds of years because looking at sort of colonialism and the crusades, those were effectively ventures. They were adventures. And there were groups of people going off to far off lands to make really big, important changes that were going to impact Europe and the rest of the world. And this required a lot of resources, a lot of manpower, and a lot of capital. So someone had to be in a position to say, hey, I'm going to put my hard-earned savings into this crazy idea and maybe it'll pay off really big and then in around the 1950s you there was the really the codified the term venture capital as we use it today and then you had these crazy technology entrepreneurs that had a vision an idea something really difficult to achieve and there were a group of people primarily in the silicon valley in that area who said you know what i'm going to fund this you know this idea this business plan this very early stage venture and i'm going to do it over and over again uh as part of a venture capital strategy and now it's grown into a really huge asset class that's globally uh that people are participating in and so the historic context of venture capital is 
super interesting. And I think the Tropicalist did a great job of, of highlighting that and also showing how re- history tends to repeat itself and also how mankind has been sort of pushing the boundaries in one form or fashion for a long time and that there needs to be in, in order to do that uh, the development of s- sort of strategies frameworks for people to cooperate with one another to do complicated coordinated activities yeah a lot of the stuff that we think of as being new developments in asia are actually a reversion to the historic mean and uh, when we listen to Fru Zonfar talking about his own life story, so for example, you know, he has this really interesting trajectory. He's, he's lived in all these places, he's very well traveled. And what was interesting to me was that at no time in his life so far has he been the product of an American or a Western institution, but you know, he speaks beautifully. And of course, he's working for an American venture capital firm in Hong Kong. And it made me realize that there may be an increasing trend of a new globalization that doesn't center on the West. And again, here I say new, but really, it's a reversion to a historic mean. Because again, if you look at it, so right up to the 19th century, so if we look at numbers from, say, 1820, for example, we have numbers from that year, India and China were the world's two largest economies in terms of GDP. Of course, by the end of the century, the U.S. had claimed the number one spot. But it wasn't that long ago that this part of the world was still the center of things. And of course, things are different now. So when I say reversion to the mean, I don't necessarily mean a repetition, because of course, you may have heard of this expression, history doesn't repeat itself. It, It rhymes. Things will be different at this time, because of course, the U.S. is the big player in the world economy. But still, my prediction is that in the next few decades, the U.S. is going to transform more and more into a Pacific power and economy. And already we're seeing that to an extent within the United States, where a lot of the economic, but also the political power is starting to move to the to the West or the Pacific coast. And I know this sounds a bit fanciful, but sort of I, in my imagination, I, I kind of imagine this future where my grandchildren, say 40 years from now, they're looking at a world map and you don't have the Atlantic Ocean in the center, but the Pacific Ocean. And, you know, you have America on one side and East Asia on the other side. And, you know, the part of the world that was once considered the East now becomes the West. Anyway, what do you think? No, Madhavi, I completely agree. I mean, the balance of power is clearly shifting from the West to the East. And so we had the domination of really a lot of global systems by Europe and the United States in this post-World War I and post-World War II era. And now that's coming to Asia. And it really kicked off with the, um, you think about in the post-World War II era, you had the uh, four Asian tigers that were integrated into this global supply chain. And that goes back in sort of to the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And now we're in a period past that where you have the rise of China and India in these massive countries with each with over 1 billion people. And we're seeing a center of consumption of investment of power and now innovation and increasingly cultural and political power coming back to Asia. And so it's Farooz Zomfar, 
is playing a role in terms of venture capital, this, this sort of American model uh, developed in the 50s, and now it can be applied to what is now becoming the center of global commercial activity. And Central Asia sits at the center of the center. And it's really interesting to see how it can be used to propel development uh, in the region, and that perhaps the region, as it shows, uh, demonstrates as more uh, stability, and perhaps because of its cultural values, and perhaps its cultural capital, we might actually see something like a new Silk Road developing. And with that uh, infrastructure and trade infrastructure, and trade between Europe and Africa. And so this could be part of a, a really, as I said, the Asian century that we're going to see the weight, the center of gravity come here and it'll be clear to more and more people uh, what's happening. Yeah, I agree with you. And speaking of places that uh, Fruzonfar grew up in, he, he talks about Yemen. And again, a lot of these places may sound a bit random to those of us who are ignorant of the history of this part of the world. But actually, Yemen played a very important role in these ancient trade routes. And um, so uh, during the Middle Ages, I, I, uh, when the, a lot of the land routes over Central Asia were controlled by powers that could sometimes be hostile to uh, European powers, uh, there was this drive, right, to look for, as, you, as the tropic was mentioned, there was this drive to look for alternative ways to get to Asia, especially via the ocean, via these maritime routes. And one major sea route was from India to Aden, which was then the capital of Yemen, and then up the Red Sea, cross over land to the Mediterranean Sea, and from there, of course, straight to Europe. So, uh, Aden was a very important trading port for 300 years. It played a, a very central role in world trade. Yeah. I mean, Yemen's a place that few of us know much about. It, it sounds like it's had a, a really incredible, interesting history. And just a quick fact check, Yemen actually has uh, sort of two capitals. Uh, it has its constitutionally stated capital, which is in uh, Sana'a, but that has been under Houthi rebel control since 2015. And there's this historic capital of Aden, which is controlled by this Southern Transitional Council since 2018 and actually has executive administration based in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. So Yemen clearly is a much more volatile place now than when Furuzamfar was living there and enjoying the, the peaceful serenity and the culture of, of, of a really interesting uh, trade place that was important in, in regional trade. I was really struck by uh, his description of, of Yemen because you know, our impressions that we get uh, through the media is primarily about war and destruction and poverty. But I think few of us could imagine how culturally, how culturally advanced uh, Yemen was and yeah. how nice of a place it was uh, to live um, really into the early 90s. Yeah. You know, when we talk about Asia today, most of all, most of us sort of tend to think of like the, the big, you know, the China, the India, maybe Southeast Asia. But, you know, there are a lot of these other powers that at one time were very prominent and then owing to a combination of factors sort of faded into obscurity. 
like Yemen or also like countries in Central Asia. So, for example, when Furzonfar, he's talking about his ancestors, you know, and these, the historic peoples of Central Asia and how there was one time where they controlled all the, the trade on the Silk Routes. I believe he's actually referring to a people known as the Sogdians, who are pre-Islamic Iranian peoples who ran this Silk Route trade for centuries. And their homeland was Sogdiana, and it was sort of located between what is today we call Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. And the Sogdians, they were at the zenith of their powers between the 4th and 8th centuries. Interestingly, although they were a major civilization, not much is known about them because they were not imperialistic, not, not very centralized, and they didn't rely on the traditional institutions of political and military power to exert mm -hmm. their influence. So their political organization was quite interesting because there were a series of municipalities and oasis towns, and each town had its own leader, and they thrived by making a virtue of their mobility, their flexibility, and individuality. I mean, some ways, you know, sound very modern, right, these peoples. And like many of the other sort of uh, trading civilizations of Asia, culturally, they were very syncretic. They were very open to all sorts of external cultural influences, followed a host of religions, you know, from Christianity to Judaism to Buddhism. And they actually had a lot of cultural influence in the courts of Tang China, where the ladies of the Tang court actually, they adopted the fashions of, of Sogdian men. Now, the Sogdians, as traders, you know, they, they traded a lot of luxury items such as silk from China, horses from the Fergana Valley in Uzbekistan, furs from the northern steppes, gemstones from India, musk from Tibet. And if listeners are interested in knowing more about the Sogdians, the Freer Sackler Museum in D.C. currently has an online exhibition on, on the Sogdians. And, and the Sackler calls the Sogdians the, the influencers of the ancient world because they didn't actually rely on the traditional institutions of power, but instead used their social networks and knowledge of 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 what was cool, you know, this insider knowledge, their cultural capital, uh, and they, they used it to, to shape the world. So there you go, you know. So long before there was uh, Kim Kardashian, you know, uh, I, I don't know if we can still call her an influencer because she's kind of a mega celebrity now. But anyway, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, they were the Sogdians. <laughs> Well, I, I think that's, you know, a great point, Madhavi. And, and what I really loved about getting to know Furunzafar and spending time with him is to the extent that he seems to embody a lot of these uh, traditional Central Asian cultural vi virtues and attributes. And one thing that as a listener, none, nobody can uh, know or appreciate is actually how much of a dapper dresser of uh, Furuzafar is. Uh, he's very handsome. Oh, he actually okay. looks like a fashion model. And he uh, has a sartorial flair that is pretty much put most anyone else to shame. So he, in addition to that, he speaks all these languages. And this is a re in a region, as you mentioned, with the Sogdian culture in the pre-Islamic era, they had a lot of, of Turkic uh, influence, a lot of Persian cultural influence, and then later you had Islamic cultural influence and, and Soviet Russian 
cultural influence. And Farod Zafar speaks all of these languages, uh, apparently fluently, uh, having uh, lived in various regions uh, and grown up uh, in, in uh, these various countries. And so in terms of his openness, in terms of his language, he is able to travel seamlessly around the world interacting with people from different cultures, um, just like perhaps his ancestors did, and a little bit in the nomadic tradition, and able to do deals uh, with them and find and create opportunities. So just as we saw with his parents moving from one country to another, to another, to another, like nomadic people of that region, historically, he is falling in the similar tradition. And, you know, they're also educators, right? And that right. there's a long tradition of scholarship and education in that region. And uh, Farun Zafar, to me, is also an educator. And if you look at the madrasas and all the preeminent scholars and all the uh, esteemed universities in that region, for them, knowledge and wisdom and sharing of insights uh, was an important part of, of the culture. And I think Farun Zafar, you could hear from this, uh, my interview with him, really is someone who follows in the best of that tradition. So I thought he was a wonderful guest uh, for that reason. Yeah, you know, I thought it was very interesting, especially where Farun Zafar talked about how siblings are in the West and his grandmother, the matriarch of his family, decided that he should focus on the East, you know. Just, yeah, uh, it's a very, very strategic yeah. and uh, just like a, a matriarch, uh, she's like a, a family enterprise. She's looking after this multiple generational family and saying, how can we best survive and thrive? And so you go west, my young man, and you go east because we need to have a, a global presence uh, to, uh, to because we don't know how things will unfold or where the opportunities will lie. And thankfully for me, Furun Zafar did come east uh, to Hong Kong, and I feel very honored to have him as a friend. Yeah, I I'm, I definitely told my kids about uh, Farouz Anfar after your interview. I was like, <laughs> you know, look, this is how you need to be to succeed in today's globalized world. Be flexible, be mobile, speak five to seven languages. <laughs> you know, uh, he really he really embodies the the culture of his ancestors. <laughs> that's right. He speaks fluent Russian. He speaks fluent Chinese. I think he speaks Turkic. I think he speaks Arabic. Obviously, he speaks native English. Although having never lived in a country where English was the, the native language. And it also, you know, he also embodies this theme that we're talking about, about the center of gravity moving from west to east. And, you know, as I mentioned, you know, this Asian century could be the century and Central Asia is the middle of Asia. And so, you know, this is a region that very few people know about, understand, very few, including myself, have never visited, yet strategically could be incredibly important. And we talk a lot about East Asia, the Far East, and, and we know about the countries and the companies and what's happening there. But actually, the Middle East or the Near East is less, also less talked about. But we're seeing countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE, for example, actually making some revolutionary changes in in their governments, in the rules and the laws, and in the society as a whole. So actually, as we 
see an already sort of risen Far East in a in a rising Middle East, Central Asia could be perfectly placed to, to play a really more important strategically role in what's becoming the most important continent in the world. Oh yeah, I I really really loved what Fourzon Far said about his his desire to see the economy of his homeland focus less on natural resource extraction, which anyway, as he mentioned, Tajikistan doesn't have a huge territory like Kazakhstan does, but instead, you know, leverages historic position as a central point for the world's most populous and ancient region and become a center of learning for students from India and China. I really like that. It gives me a lot of hope when I hear young people in Asia show that kind of vision. I think it would be brilliant if that could actually happen. Uh, so I hope he finds uh, some investors for that project. It's it's also kind of interesting to me to think about how the same land, how over the millennia, the things that make it valuable change so dramatically. And by this, I mean, Central Asia historically was very important because of its strategic position along these trade routes back when India and China and the, you know, was the center of the world economy. But then as they went into decline, it loses its, its strategic importance for that reason, but it becomes important for another reason, which is its abundant deposits of oil, gas, and all these other minerals like zinc, copper, gold, whatever, iron ore, lead, manganese, you name it. Of course, like, mm -hmm. you know, the whole periodic table, right? And in fact, that's what most people tend to think about today when they think about this region. So it's it's great to have somebody like Huzonfar come on the show and remind us that, well, in fact, there's another less well-known history of this region, once had a very important role in history, and hopefully it can return to that. Yes, absolutely. I should add that we're actually seeing with the growth of electric vehicles and f emphasis on batteries that there's increasing demand for different elements and metals that That's are right. uh, important yeah. used in these procedures. So we're actually seeing renewed interest in different parts of the periodic table that, that, uh, <laughs> because of the uh, development of these alternative energy, uh, technologies. And the other thing, Madhavi, that I, I really was taken you know, I've really been struck by also is how tolerant the cultures of this region are. And it's very ironic given, every, uh, you know, we know about Borat and he's supposedly this character from Kazakhstan who's a, a real <laughs> bigot. And in fact, uh, what we know is it's actually the opposite, that these countries uh, with their history and their culture have really they have a long history of dealing across cultures and accepting people from different cultures of selling into their lands and more or less living peacefully with one another, including across faiths and ethnicity and, ling and linguistic uh, culture without sort of having everyone need to assimilate. And we don't seem to see the same level of culture clashes in Central Asia that we've seen in other parts of the world. And I thought that that yeah. represents another... Um, let's say, aspirational quality of people like Furunzafar from that region of, of how they can uh, be in the world and uh, have their own history and culture, and, but interact seamlessly with, with people from, from other uh, histories and cultures. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you're setting the record straight on Borat. Um, <laughs> 
But not just that, you know, this this region also, they've historically, you know, been sandwiched between all these great powers. And so by necessity, they've been very skilled at diplomacy, right? So in the post-Soviet era, of course, Russia was never going to get out of the region completely. And Russian is still the lingua franca of this region. China has always had an interest in the region, not just for its natural resources, but also strategic importance. And then more recently, we're seeing uh, Erdogan of Turkey trying to reassert uh, a pan-Turkic sphere of influence here. And that's in addition to the Islamic Republic of Iran, which again has these historical cultural ties to especially uh, Tajikistan and Turkmenistan, not to mention Saudi Arabia. So I really have to hand it to this region because that is a very difficult game to be playing, to be able to maintain your independence in the face of all these competing big powers, right? So so good for them. Absolutely. Yeah, I think for, for smaller countries, regions with, with less uh, resources or power, uh, how to maintain their uh, independence autonomy is, is really a, an art form. And probably no place yeah. in the world does it better than Singapore. They're very adept at, at using uh, geopolitics to um, protect their own interests. And to some extent, we've seen Central Asian republics doing this for, for millennia. Yeah. And um, it reminds me a little bit of Thailand, of knowing that you have to bend a little bit in order to avoid breaking. Uh, they equate mm -hmm. themselves to bamboo. And I feel that Central Asia has done this. You know, they collaborate, they work with other, the major powers, all the while maintaining traditionally their uh, identity and sovereignty. Obviously, some of that sovereignty was lost during the Soviet period, you know, which was viewed as colonial power in the region. But it's interesting to note that countries in the region maintained really good relations uh, with the Russian Federation in this post-colonial era. And we actually have seen millions of Central Asians um, immigrate uh, to Russia where they live and work now. So the linkages uh, and bonds between Russia and uh, the Central Asian republics remains very strong. Yeah. One of the things that really struck me about this region is that even today in the post-Soviet era, it's very much interested in maintaining its secular nature, which, by the way, is not always the case with many post-Soviet republics. Like, that's definitely not the case in the Baltics, right? And I don't know if that's... My, my, my feeling is that this is because historically they've been a very cosmopolitan region and they have no intention of giving that up. That's very central to their identity. And, uh, I actually have quite a few friends from Central Asia and I'm always really astounded when they tell me about the diversity of the region. I guess it's just not a region that many people, even in other parts of Asia, most people just didn't know a lot about these Central Asian countries because they were, isolated, uh, I guess, behind the Iron Curtain for a long time. But learning about them now, it's it's really been a, a revelation. Yeah, I agree. I mean, um, I'm really glad that we're doing this, this podcast, Madhavi, and we can share with others while we're learning ourselves, because I myself haven't had the chance to visit the region. And I certainly want to do it now when, uh, especially when uh, we're able to travel again, because there's so much to learn and, and see there. And, and maybe we can do a follow-up uh, podcast later as we uh, we meet more interesting people. From the region. Yeah. I've, I've actually visited Kazakhstan twice because I have an interest in flowers and not many people know that tulips are native to Kazakhstan. Everybody thinks of them as Dutch, right? 
but they actually yeah. grow in the wild. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> right. They they yeah. grow they grow yeah. in the wild over there. I've I've been to several. Uh, so they just amazing... never went. Uh, they never had a mania about them. Well, so so there's some history here. The couple of times that I visited Kazakhstan, I went during tulip season and I went to these national parks and it's just amazing. You see these full, uh, these fields of, of red tulips just growing in the wild. And the story is that when the Turkic Mongol tribes of Central Asia migrated westward, they took the tulip bulbs with them to mark their journey, kind of like a Hansel and Gretel took their breadcrumbs. But in this case, it was tulip bulbs. And once they settled in Turkey and, uh, you know, they established the great Ottoman Empire, the tulips became the symbol of the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottomans actually had their own tulip mania. They would have like these tulip appreciation parties and the Ottoman gardeners were able to breed all these these new hybrid species of tulips. So it wasn't just a, a Dutch thing. It was also uh, an, an Ottoman thing as well. Um, so <laughs> so, uh, so the uh, Ottoman tulip mania preceded the Dutch uh, tulip mania. That's, yeah, uh, yeah. that's really interesting. And that's uh, uh, it's, it's a fascinating uh, sort of tidbit about that. So, um, well, we definitely need to do more on Central Asia going forward, Madhavi. Absolutely. <laughs> So, yeah, it's an amazing I, part of the world. So I think we've covered a lot. And I think, again, it was a great postscript, a novel topic for our podcast. So I want to thank you, Madhavi. I want to thank the Tropicalist for shedding more light on this region. And uh, we'll look forward to having more discussion and guests about it in the future. Yes, and and definitely thanks again to Furzofar for coming on the show and enlightening us all on the amazing history of Central Asia. And I can say that I'm really looking forward to learning more about this region. <laughs> I think it'll be a great thing. Great. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye-bye.